0: Hi, welcome to another podcast brought to you by VJ Oncology. Today, we'll revisit our 2023 coverage on the latest in genomic biomarkers in metastatic colorectal cancer. First up, we'll hear from Dr. Filippo Pietrantonio with an outline of the phase three Code Break 300 trial, evaluating the use of Sotorazib plus panitumumab versus standard of care in patients with KRAS G12C mutant metastatic colorectal cancer
1: I presented today the results of the Cohort 1 of Infinity study, uh, which is a trial sponsored by the GONO Foundation in Italy. So some background about the trial, uh, microsatellite instability is associated with better survival and potential lack of benefit from chemotherapy in patients with resectable gastric or junction cancer, uh, and it is one of the strongest predictors of the efficacy of immunotherapy. Um, also we know that a single eye dose of Tremelimumab added to Dorval, um, is uh, able to induce a higher T cell expansion uh, and is approved for patients with uh, hepatocellular carcinoma. Uh, so, in early stage disease for gastric cancer, the activity of immunotherapy is even higher, as in most GI cancers. Uh, so, immune checkpoint inhibitors may allow the omission of chemotherapy, radiotherapy, or even surgery. Uh, so, the Infinity trial was designed to test uh, this. Uh, uh, regimen of Tremelimumab and Orvalumab as neoadjuvant or definitive treatment. Uh, um, the trial enrolled patients with MSI high uh, or deficient mismatch repair resectable gastric cancer. Uh, patients were treated with this regimen and af- for three months and after disease restaging, patients in cohort one received surgery uh, and standard follow-up, uh, whereas uh, now the results have been evaluated by an independent data monitoring committee. and. The Enrollment in cohort 2 has started to evaluate this regimen as non-operative management strategy. So the results of cohort 1. The primary endpoint was pathological complete response associated with negative minimal residual disease before surgery. Uh, so uh, among all evaluable patients, uh, we enrolled 18 patients, but the evaluable patients were actually 15. Uh, the PCR rate was uh, 60% and the rate of uh, complete major to complete pathological response was 80%, so quite encouraging for a subsequent uh, uh, non-operative management cohort. The treatment was well tolerated, so no um, major safety issue uh, were reported and also the quality of life was maintained during treatment. So basically this trial is important because we have now more data in in MSI high gastric cancer demonstrating uh, the safety of uh, immunotherapy combination and also the promising eradicating activity of these regimens uh, uh, with potential future application for um, non-operative management. Uh, Of course we know that larger studies are needed uh, but soon this uh, regimen will represent a standard of care even if we still don't know the optimal combination treatment duration and the treatment goal of course whether it is neoadjuvant or non-operative management uh, uh, organ preservation strategy. Uh, uh, so now the uh, enrollment in cohort 2 of Infinity trial is ongoing after the EDMC evaluation and the protocol amendment to exclude the T4 tumours because we observed a very low PCR rate in the T4 subgroup so we excluded the, these patients for the future non-operative management strategy.
0: Next up, identifying patients likely to respond to treatment is crucial in so many cancers. So how can we implement this in metastatic colorectal cancer? Dr. John Strickler discusses an exploratory analysis following the Phase 2 Mountaineer trial using genomic alteration to predict patient responses to tucatinib plus Trastuzumab in HER2-positive metastatic colorectal cancer.
2: The Mountaineer trial was a study conducted to evaluate the activity and tolerability of tucatinib and Trastuzumab for patients with HER2-positive metastatic colorectal cancer. And uh, we found that the combination was safe, well-tolerated, and clinically active. And based on the high response rate and progression-free survival, this received a approval by the United States Food and Drug Administration earlier this year. The purpose of this study was to explore clinical pathologic features and genomic alterations that may predict for sensitivity or resistance to this regimen, both at the baseline pretreatment time point and then at the time of progression. So in terms of so, in terms of what we found in this study, uh, we first looked at clinical pathologic features and found that patients with left-sided primaries appeared to have a numerically higher response rate than patients with non-left-sided primaries. We uh, found that anti-EGFR therapies did not predict for sensitivity or resistance, so it appeared to have no impact on response rate whether or not a patient had received that in the past. And we also found a slight advantage for treating patients with Ducatib and Trastuzumab in earlier lines of therapy, but still response rates were high among those patients who were more heavily pretreated as well. When we looked at genomic factors in the baseline pretreatment tissue, uh, there were really no amplifications or mutations that appeared to predict for resistance. And we noticed that response rates remained high even in patients who had ERBB2 mutations at baseline. And then when we looked at circulating tumor DNA, we had some surprising findings. We were expecting that KRAS and NRAS variants would predict resistance to tucatinum and trastuzumab, but they didn't in our data. Response rates were about the same, and we think that was mainly because they were subclonal in nature and didn't appear to impact response. In fact, one patient with an NRAS subclone had a response that lasted over three years. So we found a number of uh, interesting factors that can be used to guide our practice.
0: Sticking with who can benefit from specific treatments, Dr. Ardaman Shergill discusses several recent studies in assessing the value of anti-EGFR therapies as first versus later line treatments in metastatic colorectal cancer.
3: My argument was based in value of care. The prospective phase three randomized study that we have that justifies using anti-GFR therapy in left-sided RAS wild-type is the paradigm study. But if we look at those data closely, the difference in survival between the two arms is only about three and a half months. The progression-free survival, which is the the time that patients are on the first-line therapy is equivalent, 13 and a half months or so. Um, However, if you look closely at later lines, which we have to do when we're looking at overall survival, you look at what patients got after the first-line therapy, about half the patients, so 45% of the patients in the bevacizumab arm never received EGFR therapy. So these are the left-sided RAS wild-type patients who never saw an EGFR agent, anti-EGFR agent, in during the entire course of their treatment. So my question then is, is the, is the difference of three months because the patient never saw an anti-EGFR therapy or is the difference because they never saw it in the first-line setting? We do look at data in subsequent settings. Um, you know, I shared data from the strategic one trial and older Canadian study where NTGFR agents are given in third line for patients um, after starting you know, left-sided RAS wild type um, included in those populations, but also you know, in one of the studies other patients were included. Um, and those patients, once they receive NTGFR therapy in the third line setting, we actually see, you know, in the Canadian study, there was a survival benefit of about three months compared to best supportive care. Um, it was four to five months in that study. In the strategic one study, there was no difference in survival between the two arms. And so I, I think, you know, it really begs the question of this benefit that we're seeing is that, is that because of a lack
4: of use of NTGFR therapy in paradigm, or, you know, because they got it in first-line therapy. So then then we have to wonder, you know, because I'm arguing based on value, is there value? Is there any harm in doing it in frontline setting? And that's where I talked about some of the toxicities, you know, the, the grade three rash that we see was significantly higher, obviously, in the NTGFR arm, and and I um, you know I shared what that looks like. It can be very debilitating for patients, especially if you know if it's facial and very visible rash. Um, th- there are other toxicities like diarrhea, electrolyte abnormalities as well. but the the rash is significant. And you know to think about a patient who has a patient patient or you know people facing job like sales or you know anything like that, um, that that patient will not be able to function and we have to think about this benefit of three months which could be offered later. Or you know this toxicity, which may actually you know influence how they how they function, the quality of their life, maybe their livelihood, maybe the income, you know the the psychosocial effects of it. Um, why not push that toxicity to later?
3: The second part of the toxicity argument was financial. You know the anti-GFR agents are much more expensive than the Bevacizumab biosimilar that's available. I also show data for triple therapy, even if we are using uh, for Farinox, you know, for a patient who we are thinking maybe maybe want to convert to resection. Um, Even with the um, growth factors, the cost is less than that of an anti-GFR agent. So benefit of maybe three months at best, that's the data we have so far, and I'm questioning that. Significant toxicity, which is, you know, visible, significant toxicity that can affect quality of life, more expensive, and a question of maybe detriment for conversion to to chemo, the conversion to resection if a patient actually has resectable disease. Those data were shown in the Cairo 5 study. The toxicity was higher. The resection rate, or R0, R1 resection rate, was not necessarily higher in patients who had left-sided RAS wild-type disease, either received chemo with Bevacizumab or chemo with anti-EGFR agent. Patients had deeper responses with anti-EGFR agent. However, and the response rate was higher, but that did not look like they, they that did not convert to having increased R0 resections or R, R1 resections. Um, in fact, the toxicity was much higher, including two deaths in the NTGFR arm. Similar data was seen in the new EPOC study as well, although those were resectable patients, you know, stage four resectable, and there was a detriment in using NTGFR therapy. Um, and those, you know, we have to balance all of this the question to me was this is a fit patient. So if a fit patient, maybe unresectable up front, you know, are we are we thinking about resectability? We could, or am I am I taking that chance away from them by introducing NTGFR in the front line? So I think it's it is one option for um RAS wild type left-sided patient. I don't think it's the only option. I definitely don't think it is the most essential option for patients on the left side. And it, this has to be, you know, a conversation with the patient, the risk and the benefit. and and what the patient would want eventually.
0: Finally, Dr. Benny Johnson evaluates the use of circulating tumour DNA to monitor minimal residual disease, or MRD, status and highlights the importance of finding this standard of care.
5: The idea of uh, identifying minimal residual residual disease in colorectal cancer is is extremely exciting. the majority of our patients, you know, now with the increased rise in young onset colorectal cancer, we're having a tremendous amount of patients that are still in the prime of their careers, um, developing uh, or or actually uh, uh, rearing young children. And so they don't wanna have the impacts of traditional chemotherapy, uh, the neuropathy that we often, uh, that patients often experience with more traditional approaches. So offering novel immunotherapy combinations that are much more tolerable in the setting makes a whole lot of sense. The difficulty though is in a minimal minimal residual disease setting or an MRD setting, um, when we find CTDNA positivity, we alert the patient of this, and this is an exciting thing to say, hey, we we see cancer before uh, microscopically before it actually develops on a scan, but what do we do about it? There's no standard of care in terms of what to do, and so there's a tremendous amount of research efforts to say, well, what is the best way to intercept this uh, this this finding? Um, and so that could be traditional chemotherapy, uh, that could be immunotherapy combinations, but this is all under the umbrella of, of clinical trials. None of this is standard of care. And so we have, we at MD Anderson, we have an intercept program that has a multiple array of, or a portfolio of clinical trials that are really kind of speaking to how Treat MRD for colorectal cancer patients after they've completed all of their stage three treatment and metastatectomy for for liver or lung metastasis. And so it's, it's exciting because we have these clinical trials that are trying to answer the question. But having put a few patients on some of these protocols, we realize at the end of treatment, you know, if we do a Um, Say, we we offer a patient a trial for six months of therapy, you know, we're following ctDNA clearance rate. That's how a lot of these these trials are being um, developed or designed, Um, and at the end of six months of therapy, we may have cleared patients, or we also end up finding some patients still have a low level of allele frequency picked up, and so what do we do for those patients? Do we move them on to another clinical trial, or do we... um, put them on maintenance chemotherapy. There's just a lot of questions that still remain and whether or not ctDNA clearance rate is an adequate um, surrogate for all, for overall survival that yet is still to be determined and so I think it's exciting you know I'm putting patients from one MRD trial on to the next if they don't completely clear their CT DNA. but it's also pretty exciting to see the CT DNA dynamic changes where we're seeing high allele frequencies out of the gate with nothing on a seat on a CT scan and having this option for patients to do something very different very cool intercept the cancer and then change maybe the trajectory of their course, but the long-term data is still you know being generated as we speak and whether or not we're um, making a difference in patients outcomes or, or is yet to be determined. I think we are, um, but, uh, but it's, it's still a lot that, that remains to be, to be discovered.
0: Thank you to our speakers and thank you for listening to this podcast. Make sure to subscribe on Apple, Podbean or Spotify to keep up with the latest updates in oncology and access exclusive interviews and curated conference coverage. If this topic interested you, please visit our dedicated page on genomic biomarkers in metastatic colorectal cancer found in the description. See you next time.